I doubt if there is any problem, social, political, or economic, that would not melt away before the fire of such a spiritual undertaking. Awesome. Welcome to another fantastic edition of the Lamp and Liquor Podcast, where society is decadent and know nothing is right about us. Um, and God, in his um, divine time, um, has kind of brought together these two interesting parallels. Because uh, last week at Mass, I was sitting in the pews, um, and Father Michael, friend of the pod, who was on here for um, to talk about the Latin Mass, uh, spoke eloquently and quite for some time about the importance um, of the Anglican tradition um, within the Catholic Church. And he also talked about the, um, he talked that they were going to be having some Vespers um, within that tradition at Holy Ghost um, on Saturday, which unfortunately I'm not going to be there because I'm going to be traveling, um, but I'm still really excited and looking forward to it. And so that juxtaposes really well with the guest we have today for our series Lessons in Liturgical Literacy. We have uh, Father Jason Catania, who is here to talk to us about um, that about that tradition, about the ordinariate, which we're really excited for. We're finally back on track after we've had some bumps with, with scheduling. Um, um, I'm Thomas, if you case, in case you don't know, I occasionally do some interesting things in history um still working on stuff so nothing interesting has been produced as yet um i'm joined as always by michael who's kind of onto his new stage in life moving into more capitalist endeavors uh shall we say um and as always by peter who is the Gaudi tower of reason in this podcast um so uh but of course our main guest today is father jason uh father jason how are you doing today how are you doing tonight i should say five thanks great to be with you Yes. Could you um, introduce yourself a little bit? Um, I know you're in D.C., but could you give a little more of a backstory um, to all? Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm a priest of the personal ordinary of the chair of St. Peter. Um, I uh, have just begun a new assignment at St. Luke's Ordinary Parish, which is, meets in the uh, uh, suburbs of, of, of D.C. Uh, prior to that, uh, I was a pastor of St. Barnabas Church in Omaha, um, and prior to that, I, um, among other, uh, assignments, uh, I was, uh, the, uh, administrator at Mount Calvary, uh, in, uh, Baltimore, which was where I came into the Catholic Church with, with the parish. I was their last Episcopal rector, and, um, uh, we came in the church together in 2012 when the ordinary, the very beginning of the, right after the establishment of the ordinary. So I've been, uh, uh, I, I was the, I think the third priest ordained for the ordinary. So I've been there, been here from the beginning. Yeah. So what has it been like, um, kind of setting, or like, setting the trend then for, um, you know, kind of being one of the first parishes that came together, kind of fulfilling um, that ordinary admission, um, coming into the church as a parish, what was it like, you know, as an entire group um, coming in? Because, you know, we always hear about conversion stories, you know, like Father, like Scott Hahn, right, being the, you know, kind of par excellence example of it, um, where it's very individualized um, journey of, you know, one individual reading the church fathers, et cetera. Um, what's it like though, for like an entire parish uh, to come in, which in some ways seems to be something of the reason uh, for the ordinary its um, existence. Well, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the, uh, the document that Pope Benedict uh, 
promulgated to, to which would lead to the establishment of the ordinary was entitled Anglicanorum Cedibus, groups of Anglicans. Uh, and so that certainly was the uh, his vision for this this project. Um, you're right; it's quite different. Uh, you know, you know, an, an individual conversion uh, uh, from you know coming together as a group. I was uh, an Episcopal priest, was the, the, the pastor of, of this Episcopal parish, and we discerned together that this was what God was, was calling us to do. Now, it didn't come out of nowhere. Um, Mount Calvary was uh, an, an Episcopal parish that fell very much within the Anglo-Catholic tradition. Um, it's, historically, its clergy and its parishioners I, you know, identified as Catholics. Um, and so when uh, Anglican Orm Credit was, uh, was issued, it was... It, 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 it was almost a, a handwritten invitation. So it, it didn't take much uh, for us to respond to that um, in terms of our internal discussion. The process, for other reasons, took some time. But in terms of our own discernment, um, we, we quickly realized that this was indeed where God was calling us and what really that this was the the culmination of the entire kind of Anglo-Catholic movement within Anglicanism uh, as people, as individual converts like St. John Henry Newman had discerned previously. Um, you know, we, we very much saw ourselves falling in that tradition and being able to do this, you know, together and to, and to, and to enter as a, as a community. Uh, was that spirit alive uh, before you got there? Before you, oh, yeah. really? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mount Calvary is, is, uh, was founded in 1842. Um, it had it very much was founded as an Oxford movement parish. Mm -hmm. uh, its priests um, had um, uh, very much embraced. Uh, well, what was uh, came to be known as the, the, the ritualist phase of the Oxford movement, where you have a, you know, the uh, you know the early phase being primarily theological, um, mm -hmm. but then you know taking on a, uh, a liturgical expression, and that characterized the parish for most of its history. And indeed, one of my predecessors in the uh, 1860s. Um, was himself, um, after being an Anglo-Catholic, uh, felt called to, you know, to uh, enter into full communion with the Catholic Church and was actually received into the church by Newman himself. Wow. Um, went to England, was received into the church, went back to Baltimore, uh, went to seminary, was ordained a Catholic priest and eventually a bishop. Um, so, so, Father... Um, a question about that process of setting up the ordinariate. Was this something that uh, members of this kind of Anglo-Catholic tradition were requesting of Rome? Was this something that the people would wanted be, Rome to do? Yeah. I mean, and, and, it, and it wasn't just recently. I mean, mm -hmm. for for 100 years or more, wow. there have been petitions 
um, from groups of Anglicans approaching the Holy See, mm -hmm. asking if some kind of provision could be made for what we, as Anglicans, then referred to as corporate reunion. Right. Uh, coming, coming to get, you know, um, the goal, of course, the hope was that the entire Anglican communion uh, would be reconciled with Rome, right. um, especially with developments in, in, the, in the later 20th century. It was clear that that was not going to happen right. um, as a whole, but that parts of, of uh, you, know, you know, certain, certain self-selected uh, groups of Anglicans might be able to achieve that. Right. And so there was that hope that, that some kind of provision might possibly be made in this way. And so, and, and that's, that is what um, Pope, Pope Benedict was responding to. Was, um, it was funny at the time that uh, the, um, the document was, was promulgated, you may recall, there were all sorts of um, sarcastic and kind of critical uh, comment, comments made that, oh, you know, the Vatican parking its tanks on, on, uh, on the Church of England's lawn, and like, like this invasion, this sheep stealing, uh, the, the poaching, um, and, you know, but, but what, 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 what the Holy Father made clear in the document itself was he was responding to requests that had come Right. from groups of Anglicans. This was not an offensive strategy uh, on, on his part by, uh, by any means. Right. And Father, I'm curious, what came first, the chicken or the egg? So like, did, 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 did you, like when you, when you joined with the parish, did, did you know, like, like where, was there, was their spirit of wanting, like of ecumenicalism and, and wanting to come in, was that something that affected you or were you already affected and it was just a match, so to speak, made in heaven? Like, it was like, was this just like, uh, it, it was the latter. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew uh, I was ordained in the Episcopal Church in in, in two thousand, mm -hmm. and I, I, I even then I knew that someday I would be a Roman Catholic. When, how, I did not know, and um, so when I when I went to Baltimore in two thousand. Um, I definitely had a sense of where uh, I hoped things, you know, you know the, the, way, the way I hoped things might develop. Uh, as it turned out, the, you know, the parish, um, you, know, you know, had been talking, you know, it was certainly was already kind of, I knew it was kind of somewhat marginalized from the life of both the Episcopal Church uh, and had been for some time. Uh, but what became clear is that uh, there was definitely a already, even before Anglican Armageddon, a sense that the future lay with Rome somehow. So um, that's a really fascinating um, kind of segue into my next question is, so what inspired you to become an Episcopal priest? Because you said you, you knew you wanted to be a Roman Catholic at some point. So what was the discernment process? Well, I mean, I, 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 I became very much an I grew up Lutheran, and when I discovered Anglicanism, I, 
I very, very much gravitated toward Anglo-Catholicism and that whole tradition. And I really uh, absorbed, you know, became absorbed uh, with um, reading about the Oxford movement mm -hmm. and whole, the whole history of um, what you might call the high church party within Anglican and, 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 you know, kind of became engrossed in that world. Um, what, you know, but, but there was always a, a sense that um, we all, all of us as, as Anglo-Catholics, we knew people who had, you know, as we would say, swam the Tiber uh, or, or poked. Uh, <laughs> we, had, we, had, we had all sorts of good expressions for it. Um, uh. and, and so we all knew that, you know, that, you know, that, uh, that that was, you know, for many of us, that, that might be where we ended up. So it was, it was not, it was very much within the, the realm of possibility. Um, and, uh, so it's not that, uh, I had this sent, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a plan. It was just like, just sort of an inkling that, you know, given the trajectory of my, my, my theological development up to that point, I, you know, I knew where it was likely to lead. Mm -hmm. uh, Interesting. <clears throat> and so you, you were, you were, you were a uh, Lutheran and you were a Lutheran minister for a bit? No. No, no was, uh, just Lutheran. So, because uh, I was about to ask, like, how many, se how many, how many seminaries have you been to? <laughs> Only two. Okay, <laughs> good, good. That's two enough. For <laughs> oh man, no. I've only been ordained, you know, deacon and priest in the Episcopal Church, and deacon and priest in the Catholic. Okay. So yeah, two, two, two. Not third times the charm, just eight. Two. Now, there, there are, now, now, some of our some of our clergy in the ordinary have had a much more um, like, yes, a much, yeah. much, much more complicated okay. journey and have been ordained in various Protestant churches before becoming Anglicans and then coming into the Catholic Church by the ordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, no, I was, uh, you know, my, my ministry before the Catholic Church was, it was, in, was entirely as uh, Episcopal. I see. So, so what exactly, because you mentioned um, Anglo-Catholicism, um, what specifically about that liturgy uh, drew you in that direction towards that Episcopal um, priesthood? Was there something specific about that liturgy kind of as obviously a Roman Catholic um, novice who just is like, oh, there's like Anglicans and Episcopalians and that's like, and there's like some Methodists off on the side and like, that's kind of it. Um, but what specifically, and then you obviously don't really know much of the difference between all three of them. Um, What's it, what was it specifically um, moving into the liturgy per se um, about the that Anglo-Catholic liturgy that really spoke to you um, and spoke to your vocation? Well, um, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, um, Anglo-Catholics, especially in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, developed a very uh, elaborate kind of liturgical. Uh, life, which um, largely uh, hated the Catholic Church at, uh, at that time, and just simply in the vernacular. So there were a number of missiles. They're basically the Trinity Mass in Tudor English, 
Um, there are breveries and, and, and other office books. Um, I mean, basically everything that all, virtually all of the official books of the Catholic Church found, found their way in, amongst Anglo-Catholics unofficially. These were never things author, books authorized by the Church of England or the Episcopal Church officially, but widely used by Anglo-Catholics. And so when I discovered these, this whole, this whole world, I was like, wow, it's, um, uh, I, I, I had, had no idea that that, that uh, even existed. And when I discovered it, it was, it was something that I, I was very, quite fascinated by. Um, and so that, um, uh, I, I should also add that my, my background as a musician, uh, I, it was a, uh, a bachelor's degree in music and a master's in musicology before going to a seminary. Basically a rock star. <laughs> What's that? Basically a rock star. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, as a, in my studies in, in liturgical music, uh, when I discovered that, you know, the, the, the propers are chanted and all, of the, you know, the, uh, all this, all this stuff that, um, that I knew existed historically was, was there in Anglo-Catholic practice. And so I, I found that extremely compelling. And so that, that's really what drew me to that, uh, that tradition. Cool. So I guess um, moving then into divine worship, uh, the missile, which is the um, official um, uh, missile, I should say, of the ordinary of the chair of St. Peter. Um, I guess, how would you prepare um, someone for who has never gone to one of these liturgies like myself, Michael, of course, is, is would just tell me what to do. Um, like, how would you uh, prepare someone who's never um, been to one of uh, these liturgies? How would you prepare them for that? Sure. Well, it's, I mean, it is the Roman rite. It's, a, you know, it's the variant of the Roman rite. The mass, the overall structure of the mass um, would be very familiar to someone uh, who normally attends the extraordinary form or the ordinary form. Um, so, um, yeah. entrance rites, um, readings, tents in between, offertory, I mean, the, the over, you know, consecration, communion, um, and especially if you're familiar with the extraordinary form, it, it would be quite familiar. Um, I should add that the, the, um, the rubrics of our missile are intentionally flexible to allow a certain breadth of liturgical practice. Um, so there are things like, um, um, that are optional, things like the prayers at the foot of the altar, which the given community may or may, may or may not use. Um, the last gospel, optional, which may or may not be used. Um, at a Sunday mass, you might see the Asperges or, or the, the Vidiaquum. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, offertory, um, there are two forms of the offertory. The first are the traditional offertory prayers as found in the extraordinary form. The second are the, the Novus Ordo prayer, uh, but in the endowed language, because that's the, the, the overall. Which uh, one do you use? The, the, the former. <laughs> that's, cool. that's awesome. Sorry, brother. <laughs> yeah. I I would venture to say that most of our priests probably use the That's cool. That's awesome. Uh, and most of and most of our communities. It is and it is the first option, which says something. I'd also add that uh, you know almost almost all of our parishes, with just a couple of exceptions that I can think of, um, celebrate the Mass out of Rianto, um, you know, receive communion kneeling at the rail, um, mostly on tongue, although that's strictly required as in the extraordinary form. Um, so. Um, so I think someone coming from either form of the, of the, of the, of the Roman right, you know, would, would see commonality. I'm curious if um, maybe, as, I mean, this is kind of a bit of your history as well. You know, your personal history as well as things like that is if, if somebody like, you know, you're, you're talking to three, three Catholic guys, as far as I'm aware, cradle ones and, and, uh, and, and, and but we engage a very very broad spectrum of people to our in our day to day life. So if we're talking to somebody who say is you know like high church this or or that or or just uh, very 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 you know serious about their their Protestant faith, solid Christian, um, very faithful, mm-hmm. and so close to the Tiber, like their 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 toes are dipped in it. Because we might have a couple of listeners there, and you we know might. who you we know who we you might. know who you guys are. <laughs> might, and I'm not trying to put anything on your shoulders. Just hypothetically, <laughs> hypothetically, Father, if there was somebody who was like, I mean, they're they're looking at the type, like there it is in front of them, right? They're not they're not miles away. They're right there. They're on the bank. Is there like what? what, what would... I, I, I've been there myself, so I know what that feels like. Yes. Yeah. Um, as a because as a friend, it, like your heart bleeds. You're like you're so you're so close. So I mean, like, would you have any like for this liturgy in particular, being um, the ordinary, like being? Well, I, I can say this from from my own experience. Um, I, I I don't want to. Uh, this is just my honest, you know, just my experience, and I I, I will say that when I was in my twenties. I found that you know, even though I you know was moving theologically closer and closer to the Catholic Church, what I found at Mass at most places back in the '90s um, was less than edifying and um, was an obstacle. Uh, and I think, you know, there were many times where I thought about uh, becoming Catholic, you know, just on my own. Um, and more often than not, it was way, you know, the typical liturgical practice that one found in the American church at that time that really um, 
maybe uh, uh, think twice. Uh, we used to joke about having Roman fever. Uh, and the cure for Roman fever was just to go to mass down, you know, the, the, the parish down the street. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a good cure, Father. Yeah. But with with you know, but things have changed. Remark, you know, you know, this is you know, it's not not the least thanks to uh, Pope Benedict and his um, his reform. Uh, you know, the the new trans- English translation of the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The liberation of, of the extraordinary form, and um, <laughs> I think they're all part of his 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 liturgical vision for the church. And I, you know, things are not the way they were, right? Then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say to someone in that, you know, who, who was you know so close, um, you know, now I would say go, go to mass. Go and experience um, worship, um, either you know an ordinary mass or a Latin mass or or Novus Ordo mass that's done kind of in the spirit of the reform of the reform. Um, in any of these, you would you know can get a you know a true sense of of Catholic worship. And it's one thing to kind of read your way into the church or read your way almost into the church. Eventually, there's got to be, you know, the heart needs to get, you know, uh, to get involved and, um, you know, to experience um, God's call and being, you know, worshiping with the angels and saints at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. what 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 better way uh, uh, to you know, to to, full, you know, to fully get what it is to be Catholic? Is there- Absolutely. Um, so, Father, I, I've spoken to some friends who um, are are students of world religions, and they when they talk about the Episcopalian and Anglican traditions of modern time, there seems to be a difference of opinion of whether or not the true presence is actually the true presence within those, uh, within those traditions. And um, I was wondering if that movement away from this, the very serious matter of the Eucharist led a lot of Anglo Catholics to really push to be brought into the Catholic church because they saw that kind of moving away from that, that strong teaching. Well, I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, you have to remember, historically, Anglicanism has a very broad theological spectrum, all the way from extremely Protestant Calvinist, all the way to you know more Catholic than the Pope. Um, those of us that came from that end of the spectrum naturally found it an easier uh, trip. <laughs> uh, but we have enough. We have we have many from the other end of the spectrum who have found their way into the ordinary as well. It's not just former Anglo-Catholics. Mm. Um, what has changed in recent times is really not so much a de-emphasis on the Eucharist per se. Uh, ironically, there's actually been more of an emphasis on the weekly celebration of the Eucharist as the normative Sunday liturgy. Mm-hmm. What has 
definitely had an impact is the change in in, in teaching. You know, first the ordination of women, mm. um, and now more recently the you know the, the normalization of of of, of a homosexual uh, practice and you know, homosexual marriage uh, that would uh, it would certainly in parishes that I've been involved with, that, you know, that would you know, like like the one in Baltimore, uh, you know, there was things like that that made them were, were among the first things that made them say, "We need to get out of the Episcopal Church." Gotcha. I see. There was more of those kinds of things than was Eucharistic theology per se. But obviously, especially something like the ordination of women had a direct impact on Eucharistic theology because, you know, we, we, we as Anglo-Catholics, we, we said, well, you know, we're part of the Catholic Church. This was the argument that we made, uh, you know, and, and we, we have valid sacraments. But then when you start ordaining women, we have valid sacraments. You know, that calls into question the whole purpose of sacraments if you start playing around with the matter of uh, uh uh, of the sacrament. So, um, uh, but again, it was really more this, this you know, kind of this, this cultural, you know, the, the, the in, in, increasing turn toward the cultural liberalism that, that really uh, drove uh, many of us from um, the Episcopal Church. Mm. I guess um, I have. So I guess what you, it seems like you're alluding to. I remember um, it was the episode or the article that uh, Peter Smith uh, interviewed you. Um, if anyone's listening, Peter Smith actually sat down with us for an interview, which was a pretty cool, long, like two hour long, where he pick his brain about just about everything from uh, you know Christians in the Middle East to just journalism in general. Uh, but something that he mentioned in that article, which it seems you're alluding to, and I'm curious if you could explain a little bit more was the concept of the, I believe it was, it was either the three roots theory or the three branches, I should say. Yeah. yeah the three branches. Could you explain that just a little bit more? Sure. Cause you alluded to it, but I want, I was really curious, like if you could delve into like kind of the theological nitty grittiness sure. of like how that actually works. It's the theory that you would find amongst many you know, high church Anglicans that the Catholic church subsists in three branches. Uh, the Roman, the Orthodox, and the Anglican, and that all three possess episodic succession um, and possess valid sacraments. And this, and this, it was this argument that, and well, did and continues to uh, keep many otherwise Catholic-minded Anglicans within the Anglican fold, because. Due to this, their belief in this this theory, um, you know, lets them say to themselves and to others that well, you know, we well, we're Catholic already. We don't need to go to Rome. We're Catholic already. Um, but of course, any historical um, understanding would, would, would make it, you know. Uh, this, this, this theory falls apart, you know, with, with that, with, under any any kind of historical scrutiny. Um, you know, it was very clear if you read about 
what happened at the English Reformation. Mm -hmm. uh, that there was a, 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 especially after the death of Henry VIII, um, the reign of his son at VI, that there was a decided turn toward continental Protestantism away from Catholic, particularly sacramental theology, in a very deliberate and self-conscious way. And it is very, you know, it, 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 it's hard, it, it's impossible to get around that. So, uh, but nonetheless, this, 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 the branch theory persists. Okay. Among, uh, among us. Um, I, I just wanted to ask one thing. So just kind of, uh, you know, doing a uh, historical fiction, let's say England never uh, became Protestant, but they still colonized America. Do you think that the ordinary at liturgy would be what Americans if there wasn't a Norvis Ordo, but we still had an English liturgy, is is like what the ordinary practices, is that what the English-speaking world probably should be doing if they wanted a true, like, kind of, instead of a Latin, but an English mass, so to speak? I, I think that's conceivable. Um, I mean, the language of our liturgy is, is the language of, you know, the Book of Common Prayer, in many ways, it's the language of Shakespeare and Milton and, you know, you know, in English literature of, of, you know, of the 16th and 17th century. Um, and so is it vernacular? Yes, obviously, it's English. Um, it's modern English at that. It's not Chaucer. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's getting, yeah, it's getting a little crazy then if it was in Chaucer. <laughs> Um, but it is, you know, in a distinctive, you know, religious character. Um, of course, it's not, it's, it's also the same language of the Dewey Reams Bible, um, pretty much. Um, so, so I suppose that, you know, that, that, that is, you know, uh, conceivable, um, one of the things that I, I, I really love about our liturgy is the fact that it uses this, this sort of somewhat archaic language because it is a truly sacred language. You know, it's sort of the best of both worlds. As I said, it's English and it's modern English. And it's, for the most part, any modern person with a few exceptions of, of in terms of some particular words um, will immediately understand what's being said. Um, and you don't have to be particularly educated to understand what's being said. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it is, it's, it is distinct from the language that we use every day. Um, and so it has that sacred quality to it that um, that is, is um, it's again, it's sort of the best of both worlds. C.S. Lewis has a short essay about prayer book English, where he kind of, and I forget which collection that essay is found in, um, 
where he basically says the same thing, that, that, the, that the English of the prayer book, of the Book of Common Prayer, which is the, the, the very same language that we, we have in our liturgy, has this kind of uniquely sacred quality uh, as, as a vernacular uh, that... Um, Mm-hmm. So I guess I kind of have a question. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to catch up. Um, I'm sorry. I guess I have a question. Um, kind of going off of uh, Peter's question, or potentially Peter's like next bestseller on like historical what ifs fiction kind of thing. Um, which maybe you should try doing sometime, Peter. That'd be kind of interesting. Um, right, a whole timeline or something. <laughs> right. Um, I guess so. I have a question. I was when I was preparing for the, for this interview, I read through the document of um Anglicanorum. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce Latin, even though I read Latin every day. Uh, Quaitibus. Yeah, and it. Uh, excuse me. Chetibus. Chetibus. Yes. Exactly. Thank you. Um, and so I had a question um, about it when it was talking about the Anglican liturgy, and it was one of I forget which which paragraph it was, but one of them mentions, and I have it up for me that this whole pastoral tradition of the Anglican communion within the Catholic church as a precious gift, nourishing the faith of the members of the ordinariate and as a treasure to be shared. And it was that aspect of the treasure to be shared that really stood out to me kind of going off of um, Peter's idea a little bit is, you know, like we're all English speakers and, and for that, you know, we all come as some of us who might be of Irish descent, don't want to admit it, come from that kind of very English um, setting in that English culture, both, you know, in our government and our law um, in the fact that for some reason, it seems that American women seem to help destroy the, you know, English monarchy or something. Um, now they got track record going on for like, like we got one, you know, 19th century, got the 21st century and then 20, 22nd century, we'll finish them off um, <laughs> with our wily women. Um, but anyway, um, so I guess my question going off that long tangent is how should or how will or how can the ordinary liturgy this sacralization um of the english language within a liturgical setting how can it help influence um the novus ordo in um in just the regular english-speaking country such as obviously the the u.s right um because when i go to the novus ordo this isn't to you know necessarily go and dunk on the novus ordo and search the imagination but there's not michael's like no please please go up and please dunk no no okay okay sorry sorry. um but if there's like this you don't have this sacral sense to the english language it's it's very much utilitarian um, and that's a lot of the complaints people have about the Latin mass, right? Is that it's like, oh, I can't understand what's going on. It's like, well, yeah, it is kind of difficult at times. And even I who studied Latin, looked at Latin too long today, can't always follow it, right? Um, <laughs> but how does this like sacralization of the English language, how can that help influence the um, Novus Ordo? And then I guess to finish off this very long statement with a question mark, um, how, like, how exactly does the ordinary sacralize the English language for liturgical use in a way that's not just simply um, like utilitarian, um, for lack of a better term. That was a really long. If you want me to just like read well, the second part first, how does it uh, sacralize um, uh, our use of this language? Sacralize the liturgy. Uh, I think the fact that we're using words and phrases that have been the, the prayer language of generations of English-speaking Christians uh, going back to the 16th century, 
reinforces a sense, you know, that we are, you know, we are, we are worship. We are not simply worshiping with the people that are next to us, at, you know, in church right here and now, but, you know, worshiping with generations past. Um, so that, that historical connection with, with previous generations, um, which is something that, you know, our, our modern culture, of course, in many ways, wishes to you know, turn away from and reject everything that's past is stupid and bad and evil and racist and whatever else. And, uh, um, and that only now, only the now is, is, is uh, potentially good. Uh, the totalitarian orthodoxy of the present like that's exactly. it right now nothing right. else uh, yeah. um, so that connection with previous generations I think is key uh, in terms of how the ordinary liturgy can help um, you know is that gift to be shared and can uh, uh, help uh, um Sacralize the you know the, the liturgical practice of the wider Catholic Church. I think a, a big part of it is with uh, the music, mm. because with, with, along with the you know the, the, this this the sacral language from the 16th century onward has developed a whole body of liturgical music in the vernacular both choral and congregational that unfortunately in the 1960s when after the Vatican Second Vatican Council the, the use of the, the of the vernacular was 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 introduced in the in much of the English speaking world there was a rejection of all that stuff because oh it, it's Protestant it's Protestant we're going to come up with our own you know vernacular uh, repertoire of music and we know what the result of that was uh, largely not terribly edifying to not put too fine point on uh, here but here is now this 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 whole repertoire of choral mass settings of motets and anthems of settings of you know Gregorian chant in English using the exact same melodies that one finds in the Libra Rusualis, um, as well as psalmody to Anglican chant, uh, hymns, vernacular hymns, uh, both in translation from ancient sources as well as more recently composed texts, all of this stuff that can be used uh, much of it in in the in in a nova sort of mass. Yeah. Um, and so I think the more widely that that repertoire is known, and that's where I think something like having you know even song, um, which is a great opportunity for for um, non ordinary Catholics. You know, to experience, you know, a, a an ordinary liturgy. You know, you know, they can experience. You know, the, 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 
even song historically is a great showcase for this whole repertoire of music. Mm-hmm. And um, and the service of even song is also relatively non-threatening, <laughs> relatively short, um, and um, so and and I know and I seem to recall at the, at the time of the promulgation of Anglican Trinibus that that Oh Benedict was particularly fond of choral evensong, and that, mm-hmm. that he, it was said that he had that specifically in mind when he when when he talked about the treasure to be shared. And I'm rather proud of the fact that in, in several of my parishes, we've had uh, uh, weekly Sunday evensong um, uh, chanted. Um, during during my my time at, the, the, at those places, mm-hmm. I really like that example you gave of um, chant in English being um, the best direct way of influencing the Novus Ordo through kind of the ordinary tradition. Because you know it's always kind of frustrating when again I haven't read Vatican II, being you know a good person who just always has all their ideas about the different yeah. liturgical things without actually having read all the documents, which I will do at some point. Um, but when there's there's always that there's always that reference to that you know chant is supposed to have pride of place in the liturgy but like other other you know songs and other um music types might be allowed as well which now i'm thinking back which i haven't read it though but i'm thinking about like oh so like polyphony maybe like two voices not like you know a rock band um you know hanging out in the choir pit and it's it's frustrating because you could see like how there could be that connection you know with the greater english tradition of you know evening song etc um if you know the no- more novus ordo parishes would just be like no we're actually going to bring in um, a lot of these ancient chants and just put them within the context of English so that we can so we can understand them, but it's still singing in a tone that it goes back decades and decades um, and decades. So yeah, no, I, I really think that's that seems like a very straightforward way because obviously it doesn't seem that you know you know your Novus Ordo uh, priest is going to be like, hey everyone, you know next Sunday we're going to start using uh, the divine worship the missile like that's it. Everyone's like what. <laughs> No, um, but that I, I really, I really do like that. I this actually again uh, flipping it because obviously we were talking about how it comes out of the Anglican patrimony, the Anglican tradition. Um, is there any role um, of Latin in um, the Anglican ordinariate, or is it generally just strictly um, English? Like, is there any um, connection with Latin still? Or? There is certainly room for Latin. Uh, you have to remember that in um, you know in Oxford and Cambridge. The Book of Common Prayer was translated into Latin for their use. It's a post-Reformation, mind you. So the use of Latin certainly uh, is 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 part of the Anglican patrimony, and certainly in the 19th and 20th centuries, it became very common in um, places where there was particularly fine music. You know. Oxford and Cambridge chapels, English cathedrals, many parish churches, both you know, in in England and 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 in America, and elsewhere, uh, to you know, to sing masses by Palestrina and uh, you know Victoria and, and uh, motets and um, so yes, there's there certainly is. Um, and in my, my own parishes, I've, uh, I, 
on Sunday we had a, uh, a, a, a the setting of the ordinary of the, uh, of the mass was was a Latin setting. I forget who the composer was, but it was a Renaissance polyphony of, of some uh, of some flavor. So yes, that there certainly is is room for um, uh, for Latin within the context of an ordinary mm-hmm. liturgy. Um, so, Father, um, just kind of going back to the question about the ordinary influencing the American Church, is the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops very receptive to this dialogue with the Anglican tradition, in, or, or like with the ordinary tradition? Um, is that happening in your experience? Or yes, I mean, I think you know we're we're going on next year. It'll be ten years that we've been in existence, the, uh, the ordinary, and from what I have seen. And I think our bishop, uh, Bishop Stephen Lopes, um, would would attest to this that um, certainly as as we have sought to grow and to establish new communities, that um, local bishops are more and more open to having an ordinary community in, in you know within their diocese. And often we're, we're really at the mercy of, of the local diocese because many of our communities, you know, they don't, they don't have their own building. They, they are dependent upon the, the, the goodwill of the local diocese to uh, have, allow them to, you know, uh, a, a place where they can have mass. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of our priests, um, you know, work part-time for the local diocese, doing various things in addition to looking after an ordinary community, which might be quite small, especially at the beginning. So uh, so I think over time, we've definitely seen more and more cooperation, more, I think there probably was a little bit of suspicion at the beginning, like, what is this? Who are these people? Uh, they, they seem a little eccentric. Uh, uh, with their Englishy ways, and <laughs> why can't they just you know, go to mass at yeah. St. Bridget's over there? And why don't the arms go into like the sleeves of the surplus? I was watching a mass, and they're like, "It's outside." I'm like, "What's going on with this? Like, are you guys cutting sleeves and sleeves within the sleeves? Like, what's going on here?" <laughs> so, um, but I think over time that has that has definitely improved, and um, and, and I think that's. You know, that's really encouraging to hear. That's awesome. That's good. It is yeah. very encouraging. What's the process like? Does generally, um, can a regular um, diocesan priest who feels called to uh, the ordinary liturgy, can he just be like, I really want to, you know, try to offer this liturgy. And as long as he's trained, he can do it and start his, you know, an ordinary yet community. As Does it have to specifically be a individual who's from that? or? As long as he's responding to a pastoral need, there's considerable flexibility. If there are lay people that that, that are desirous, uh, uh, especially if they themselves come from an Anglican background, um, and they even if it's just a small group of people approach, you know, the pastor of their their local parish, um, and you know. Uh, there, there's considerable flexibility. Uh, for, uh, it, it used to be at the beginning that it was a bit more restrictive that priests had to get permission of their own bishop 
mm-hmm. given faculties to celebrate our liturgy. That is no longer the case. Uh, any priest, in, any Latin Rite priest in good standing, uh, if, if, if he is requested to do so, uh, um, may do so. Okay. So it's not quite maybe as... Um, oh, well, funny enough, I wanted to use the term Byzantine um, as an adjective to describe the process of getting rights in the Byzantine church. But oh, right. Well, <laughs> it's not quite as Byzantine a process as that. Well... <laughs> Um, remember, of course, we are part of the Latin Rite, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, so we, you know, I, I am a Latin Rite priest, uh, no, no less than my neighbors, you know, my neighboring priests here in the Archdiocese of Washington. Uh, so, um, so it's not like you know, getting faculties, you know, to be, to be by ritual, to, you know, in order to celebrate the Byzantine liturgy, you know, in the Ukrainian, for the Ukrainian Catholics. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, because we actually are, are going to try to get on uh, Father Richard Armstrong, who's a Byzantine priest, to talk about the Byzantine liturgy as well. So it's interesting that we come up with that. And, you know, hey, no, who knows? Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll bring Father Michael around to, you know, be like, hey, this English thing in liturgy ain't so bad. <laughs> so we'll see if that happens. Um, I guess to kind of like our final, like, quick set of, of questions here is um, is going a little bit more into the spirituality Um of the ordinary liturgy. Um, what is there, would you say there's a specific type of spirituality, a specific type of religiosity, which is drawn from the ordinary liturgy that is specific to the ordinary liturgy that you wouldn't say see in, or that wouldn't be inculcated or developed in something like the Byzantine liturgy or the Trishan Latin mass or the Novus Ordo. Is there something specific in the spiritual response of the participant um, within the ordinary liturgical tradition or within the Anglican patrimony uh, larger? I would, I mean, so with it, I mean, I would say that the, the Anglican patrimony and, and, and as, it's, as it's expressed within the life of the ordinary is compatible with any Catholic school mm-hmm. of spirituality. Uh, when we say that first, mm-hmm. um, because there are, you know, there are those that, you know, respond particularly to, you know, the Carmelite tradition, you know, they found the cross St. Teresa of Avila. There are some, you know, feel more drawn to, a, you know, a Franciscan uh, type of spirituality um, or an Ignatian uh, spirituality. But uh, that said, there is a certain resonance between the um, kind of the, the, the Anglican religiosity and uh, Benedictine. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, it's largely for historical reasons that the English church was very much. Uh, prior to the Reformation, was very much uh, influenced by, you know, from the time of Saint Augustine of Canterbury on 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 through by Benedictine monasticism, and the 
you know, the, the balance, uh, you know, the, the kind of domesticity uh, that one finds within the, you know, within a, within a monastery. Um, there were various attempts um, to revive Benedictine monasticism within the Anglican Church after the Reformation, uh, some more successful than others. So if there is a school of, 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 of spirituality that perhaps is most compatible, it would, it would be that. Uh, and that's been written about uh, by a number of authors observing observing this sort of as a historical phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Because it was even when I was looking at the setup of the sanctuary, uh, when I was watching the ordinary at mass, um, it was set up very much um, like a monastic chapel where it has, um, I don't know the correct term, the benches facing each other, you know, in the setting where you might pray evening prayer, morning prayer, all those other things in the Benedictine or the monastic tradition, I should say. Um, and I was just looking, I was like, this looks very similar in many ways to a monastic church where the clergy is in this distinct area obviously with you know the communion around whatnot um but they're facing each other and they have their little their booths together in the same way that you know monastery might have or a seminary uh might have for for their seminarians it was like that really actually makes a lot of sense then that's coming out of this more um monastic tradition this monastic um spirituality than even in the setup of the sanctuary so yeah that's 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 a good observation because you find that architectural arrangement quite commonly um, in uh, certainly in England, uh, but even in, in many uh, uh, Anglican Episcopalian churches uh, uh, in, in the US, uh, the, the, the Episcopal seminary that I attended in Wisconsin uh, uh, called Neshota House, which was the Anglo-Catholic seminary um, the chapel is very much set up that way. I mean, in fact, there's only a very small area outside of the choir mm -hmm. where the seminarian sat. There were a few seats in the back. We, we used to call it the court of the Gentiles. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, where like the wives of seminarians would sit and you know, other, other visitors would, would, would sit back there. But, you know, but the whole building was, was dominated by this choir long choir stalls facing each other where the students sat and then there were return stalls facing where the altar where the faculty sat uh, which is very you know very monastic in, you know in you know visually architecturally mm -hmm. so I guess then kind of following up what would um Catholics who come from other liturgical traditions, how would what would they gain in their spiritual life um, from attending an ordinary at liturgy or an ordinary at, ma ordinary at mass um, more frequently? What would they um, be drawn to? What would what would in particular to them who is unfamiliar um, with this liturgy? How would it help them in their own spiritual life? What might stick out to them? Well, um, I think it might. Uh, I mean, I mean. Exposure to the language uh, and the, uh, you know, the the richness of that uh, more uh, archaic, for lack of a better term, language, which uh, you know, again is you know would be found in 
other Catholic, you know, sources like like the like the like the Dewey Reams Bible and, and and other older devotional books, and it would be very much resonant with that. Um, I would say, but I would, you know, the music again would it, it really would would be a very uh, big big thing for those who who are coming from another um, you know, you know, more mainstream um, Catholic background and being exposed to this body of, 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 of music that, that, that spans the centuries. Um, unless they're used to going to the extraordinary form, uh, being seeing, you know, the mass celebrated on Orientum, you know, with with the um, the benefits that, that I, I, I do believe that that brings uh, in terms of a sense of the transcendence of liturgical worship that we are, we are not, you know, as, as again as Pope Benedict observed in his argument in favor of 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 returning to the uh, autoriantum practice that we're not a closed circle. Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 you know, we're not worshiping. Not that you know that when mass is celebrated facing the people, that's inevitably what happens. But there, you know, it's it's um, experiencing unorienting if you're not used to it. I think adds that dimension potentially. Mm-hmm. The directionality of of the whole congregation towards one. And just, there's, there's also an interesting thing, and this is even perhaps even in contrast, not contrast, but it is, it's somewhat distinct, even from the extraordinary form. There is an attention to detail. Some might call it OCD. Uh, uh, in, uh, in, the, in the Anglican approach to worship, that... Um, easily be accused of this myself, uh, but I think it's important that, you know, just you know, every little detail in the fabric of the church and the, the presentation of, of, of the, the celebration of the liturgy is thought about. Mm-hmm. And you do find this, you know, in other Catholic contexts, but I think it's something that is kind of particularly um characteristic and it's um can it be taken too far of course just like anything can be taken too far um but i think at its best it shows a kind of thoroughness and an all-encompassing uh giving oneself over to a spirit of worship mm-hmm. that um one does not necessarily find elsewhere mm-hmm. did i put that diplomatically enough yeah, no, no, that's that's great. That's great. I like. I really like those fronts. That's good. Too diplomatically, Father. Too diplomatically. No, I, I actually. My question that perfectly that perfectly segued segued in my question is talking about like giving yourself over. Um, is so. I, I mean, I've been to a couple um, masses in the ordinary, and 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 each one of them, each every single time I went, it was like a like a whole new whole new adventure in the. <laughs> It was like it was just breathtaking because again, like just the, the language that's used is just just so different from mm-hmm. the purely vernacular that mm-hmm. it was transformative. 
But then also, if you're somebody who's coming in from the other thing, it's close enough that it can affect you. So my question is, is uh, like, I mean, like from us, from somebody who, I mean, say they say there aren't, say there's so somebody who's not exposed to the traditional MS whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's just somebody who <clears throat> hypothetically grew up with a Nova Soto parish and their tabernacle is a giant egg, their altar is a giant surfboard, and they are like singing on with you know on angels' wings every Sunday. Um, hypothetically. You are probably it, really good at that song, Michael. Don't 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 <laughs> wait away, don't wait away from me. You probably remember every note. <laughs> but say you're coming from say you're coming from that kind of patrimony, which you know, which which has its merits and it's and it's good, but what kind of spiritual I mean, the Nova Sordo is in the vernacular. The the ordinary is in the vernacular. But but if I'm somebody who used to go to the Nova Sordo frequently, what kind of spiritual fruits are especially available to me in experiencing this this right, this right of the church that is so good and so beautiful? Well, I, again, I think it is a sense of transcendence. Yeah. That the sense of drawing ourselves out of the everyday, out of the common, out of the ordinary, um, into a, um, a a greater sense of otherness of God, of his of his of his transcendent presence. He is present to us. He is with us. He is, you know, his imminence. He is imminent, but he's also transcendent, as we know theologically. Um, sometimes we forget one as we emphasize the other. Uh, and I think, you know, since, you know, Catholic worship since the 60s has had a tendency to emphasize the imminence over the transcendence. It's certainly possible to emphasize the transcendence at the expense of the imminence as well, but I, I think in this day and age, the former is the greater danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a, a reminder that God is you what know, one of my summary professors referred to as the Christian distinction that in paganism, you know, God is part of is part of creation. Yeah. You know, pantheism or panentheism or, you know, various, you know, various uh, iterations of that. Whereas in Christianity, God is distinct from his creation. And our worship needs to reflect that. And so you know, all of these things, the language, the music, um, we've not talked much about much about it, but the ceremonial, the, you know, the ritual actions of, of, of the, 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 the clergy and the servers, all contribute to this 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 sense, the, and this and the sense of awe. Um, I remember one of the one of the first Anglo-Catholic masses that I attended you know, was as a young man that first drew me into this. There was just a sense of timelessness that this is not something that was made in the seventies. That even though it was in English, a Latin version of the uh, Latin setting of the mass was being sung, but it was it almost didn't matter. The, there was just such grandeur there, and it just it, it was almost almost disorienting, and it made made me forget where I was almost. 
this, 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 this incredible sense of awe. And I think no matter where, what, what, you know, what type of liturgy one is accustomed to, having that, um, at least on occasion, um, is a very good thing. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it is, is, is an inspiring thing that can only draw us closer, closer to God. Yeah, and it's it's also the, oh, go ahead. Peter, oh, I was going to say that's beautiful. That's really awesome. So, but like, I really like what you're saying about that transcendence, like with with God. But I mean, you also mentioned this previously um, at an earlier point when we were talking with you about the transcendence of being with your fellow Christian and with your fellow Catholic, you know, throughout the ages. And there's something um, in my from my perspective so suicidal from an institutional and from a liturgical and from a spiritual standpoint, not you know, on a, oh, you know, like we're using English as, as opposed to we should be using Latin, but in the sense of that the, we're not using Latin, not because we can use English within a spiritual patrimony and within a sacralized patrimony, but we're not going to use Latin and we're going to use English because Latin just sucks and we don't get it and we kind of just hate it. Right. And that was the old stuff well, and all the old stuff was dumb. And that's, there's something so... Um, well, disintegrating like, to identity with that it's mentality. Like, it's like it's iconoclastic. Yeah, it's iconoclastic, uh, which yeah. is the heresy. Uh, ultimately, um, I mean, it's, it's destruction. It's it's no different um, from the destruction that occurred in the 16th century during during the Protestant Reformation of statues being torn out and altars being smashed. Um, and you know, missiles and, and breveries um, and, and you know, being burnt. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, that iconoclastic spirit is 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 dangerous and is 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 often rears its head in the history of the church, um, and it's 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 destructive. And it's 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 it ultimately, you know, as 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 Benedict said uh, in Summorum Pontificum, you know, what previous ages held to be sacred, we must also hold to be sacred, and not consider and cannot and, and these things cannot be considered bad or harmful in, in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's part of what it means to be Catholic is to have this historical sense. I mean, that's what Newman famously said, you know, about, you know, be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. Um, and, and, and so whatever connects us with previous ages of, of Christians, you know, can't not be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, gr- growing up, I lived in um, Southern California and I went to a Catholic parish that um, was old, but they had, completely redone the, the uh, architecture of the church. It was originally built in a Spanish style, very, you know, very appropriate for the area, um, but it was completely changed. Um, but right down the street was an old Episcopalian parish that had not been changed since the time it was built and it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so the, the tendency to hold on to that tradition and to the patrimony and to the ages past and the generations past, I think is such a beautiful thing that if we as Catholics can, kind of hold on to and kind of learn from, I, uh, sky's the limit. 
kind of thing because we would yeah, have. I, I think there is, and having you know, having been a Catholic priest now for almost ten years, um, I, 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 I noticed that Anglicans, especially the type of Anglicans that w- would be drawn toward um, for the, the ordinary often have a greater sense of local history, you know, the history of their parish um, than a lot of Catholics do in regard. I mean, a lot of Catholics, you know, they get upset if their, if their parish might, you know, might be closed. Um, but if Father so-and-so decides he's going to rip out the altar rails, they're like, oh, well, you know, it's often you know not not a big deal, and so so many you know. Um, again, this could be taken too far. Um, we often would joke in in, in the Anglican context, you know, that, that you know you, you could you know a new priest comes along, you can't change anything. Father, that this is the way we've always done it, <laughs> so you cannot change anything. Yeah. Um, so it can be it can be overdone. But there, but but at its best, there is a there is this wonderful sense of of history, of of of, of what past generations have 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 accomplished. I mean, I've been in parishes, you know, where they would have you know pictures on the wall of every sing, all of the previous priests. Um, I've rarely seen that in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, memorials of, you know, this was given by such and such, and like a big book that's on display where you can look it up and that this, you know, this, you know, this beautifully calli- you know, calligraphied of, 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 you know, all these different memorials that were given, this set of vestments or that chalice or, you know, these various things. And again, you rarely see that kind of thing in a Catholic parish. And I think that speaks to, you know, this, this kind of sense of history. Mm-hmm. In many ways, the Catholicity, not just in a horizontal sense across the entire world, but in a vertical sense as well, going throughout the time period. Wow. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, so I kind of coming up here towards the end of the time. Um, we always want to end it off with one final question uh, that has to do with charity and the liturgy, because as we go through these different liturgies, the Latin mass, the um, ordinary it, and then finally we'll, we'll do the Byzantine. Um, is the question of charity with the liturgy, right? Because um, as we're looking up for this final question that um, St. Paul says in, you know, first Corinthians that without charity, one is a clanging gong or a clashing symbol, or maybe just a sanctuary bell or something. He didn't say that, but I interpolated that. Um, So for father, for you, how has the ordinary liturgy um, helped develop charity, the virtue of charity uh, for you and for the uh, participants um, in in your litur in the liturgy? Well, um, among the, uh, among the unique elements of our rite of, of, of Mass, um, toward the beginning is uh, right before the Kyrie, we have one of these little interpolations, uh, which we call the Summary of the Law. Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ said. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. 
thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's said at every Mass. Every single Mass. And if uh, to me, that is uh, the fact that it comes at the you know at the beginning of the mass is a reminder of, of exactly what you're talking about. That, as Saint Paul says, you know, without charity, uh, uh, whatever great works we do are are, are nothing. And so, you know, to hear those words at each and every Mass is, is a very explicit reminder that all that we do, not just in this Mass, but everything else we do as Christians, must be inspired by that true full commandment, to love God in all the ways that we can love Him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Great. I really like that because I was listening to the ordinary liturgy and I heard them kind of like it was like after the bishop is Bishop Lopez sat down and this guy kind of turns around and starts saying this to the people I'm like, this is really cool. Like, this is really interesting that he's like putting out there the importance of charity within the laws. Like, that's that is that's cool. Can we can we please have that like at mass, like yeah, La- Latin mass, Novus Ordo, Byzantine? We just put that in, in all of it because that would just solve everything. <laughs> and, add, and, I, and I think this might be the reason for you, you including this question because, <laughs> because though, as we know, those who and I include myself in this, those of us who are, are passionate about liturgy can often uh, be tempted to be lacking in charity for those who do things a little bit differently, um, who, you know, uh, might have different tastes in music or vesture or architecture. Um, and yes, while we can talk about objective reasons why one thing is better than another, it must be done in a spirit of charity. And it's easy to, you know, to lose sight of that when talking about these things, which are very important, but it, but it is e- it is very easy to, to cross that line. Uh, and even within the ordinary, I have, I have, I have I've seen examples of this. So, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you included that uh, uh, that question. Yeah, well, that was kind of like one of the parts of that this whole series is like we really want to talk about the liturgy, but like it can't just be about you know you put your right thumb over your left thumb, right? Because dexter <laughs> sinister kind of thing, right? Or like you know hold more lace, more grace, right? Yeah, exactly. Like. More lace, more grace, more linen, more sinning kind of thing. Right? All of which is true, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly true. <laughs> but without but without charity, right? It's like yes. Right. I don't know. David, don't fold your hands. Yeah. And, 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 and you know what else is true is that uh, everyone listening to this podcast ought to subscribe because Father here has done us a great privilege by joining us. And we're so oh, grateful. To absolutely. Have Father. But everyone else should be grateful as well. And they should be grateful and show their gratefulness by subscribing to our podcast. <laughs> yep. Okay, Mike. Great. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Great. Um, anyway, thank you um, so much, Father, uh, for coming on, for sitting down with us to talk about um, the Ordinary Liturgy. It's great. Really appreciated it. I know I learned a lot from it, um, talking about and how many, it's interesting for me, seeing how many similarities there were with the Latin Mass, even though, you know, you think, oh, Latin Mass and English, 
don't seem to that doesn't seem to work right but it and it just the correspondence between the two and the similar thought process and, and mindset that kind of correlated and juxtaposed between the two really for me was was really interesting and i hadn't thought of any of that before so i think um i really appreciate you guys you coming on um and talking to us about this so thank you it's my pleasure okay well as always we will end it like this in a very british way cheers